This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Thanks to all of you for coming to what is really one of the highlights of our academic year here at the University of Chicago Law School, the year's annual Coast Lecture, named after our, our former colleague, our late colleague, uh, who is... Uh, one of the only law, prof- well, the only professor on our faculty ever to win a Nobel Prize. Um, and um, we couldn't have a better person to give the lecture for this year than one of our most distinguished graduates, which is William Hubbard. Uh, William is a 2000 graduate of the law school. He then went on to practice law for Mayor Brown for several years before uh, doing a PhD across the midway with Gary Becker. Uh, and he's the sort of perfect person to come give us a lecture on law and economics. He's a lawyer's lawyer an economist's economist, and I think we're going to find out if he's a physicist's physicist. (laughs) William. Thank you, Dean Ginsburg, uh, and thanks to you and to Mike Schill for the opportunity to speak here today, and thanks to all of you for, for joining me for this event. What I'd like to do today is provide a very brief introduction to some of some basic principles of law and economics. But first, what I'd like to do is talk uh, about physics. And let me begin by apologizing uh, if there are any physicists in the audience. I'm pretty sure that over the next hour, I'm going to make complete hash of your life's work. Um, but I assure you that it's for it's for a good cause. So let me begin by um, by saying that you know we're probably all familiar from grade school uh, with some of the basic concepts of of physics: force, mass, acceleration the distinction between energy and matter, how certain types of of energy, such as light and sound, travel in waves, and how matter is composed of constituent particles, known as atoms. These are among the fundamental principles of what we call classical or Newtonian mechanics. Now, although Newtonian mechanics has been successful at describing the interactions of most of what we see uh, in the world, it breaks down when we start to look at the tiniest constituent particles of the universe, subatomic particles. Once we no longer look at matter in the aggregate, but focus on its smallest individual components, the world starts to look quite a uh, a bit different from what the classical model would predict. Matter behaves like energy. Energy behaves like matter. Particles behave like waves and waves like particles. Or perhaps more accurately, particles are waves. Two things can be in the same place at the same time, and one thing can be in two places at the same time. Or perhaps more accurately, nothing is anywhere until you look at it, and then it's somewhere. Uh, So here are three concepts that... um, are all fairly fundamental to quantum physics. I certainly uh, can't tell you much more than that about quantum physics. But, uh, but here are three concepts. And importantly, each of them distinguishes quantum mechanics from Newtonian mechanics in a different way. I will refer to them as the uncertainty principle, the correspondence principle, and the quantum principle. I'll, I'll start with the uncertainty principle. 
Now, probably the most uh, familiar term in all of quantum physics is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Now, I'm actually not going to talk about that. Uh, what I'm going to describe is something else, uh, but it's often mistaken for the Heisenberg principle. It's a more general uncertainty principle that's uh, also important in quantum physics. The uncertainty principle states that it's impossible to know everything you'd like to know about a particle's behavior. It's because the mere act of observing the particle changes the particle's trajectory. To identify a particle's location, you have to observe it. But to observe it, you have to observe it with something. Uh, And that process of observing, therefore, requires an interaction with the thing being observed. So if you look at this uh, illustration, there's an electron traveling along, and you're trying to observe it, so you're looking at it with photons. But the photons interact with the electron, changing the electron's path. The basic idea here, then, is that the very act of observing a system changes the system's behavior. Next, the correspondence principle. The correspondence principle recognizes that Newtonian mechanics does a pretty good job of describing the world that we see and inhabit. Consequently, the uh, the correspondence principle states that quantum mechanics should generate identical predictions to Newtonian mechanics when the system being observed is large. Put another way, and perhaps more useful for our purposes, the correspondence principle means that although Newtonian mechanics is wrong, its assumptions about the nature of matter are not an accurate description of the quantum reality, it is nonetheless the case that Newtonian mechanics is an excellent approximation of the quantum mechanical reality when we're talking about activity at the scale of human society. For example, a civil engineer doesn't need to know anything about quantum mechanics in order to build a dam. Now, I can say this with confidence because our own Professor Todd Henderson uh, was a civil engineer, and he did build a dam, and he doesn't know anything about quantum mechanics. (laughs) He designed uh, this, this dam. This is actually a picture of it. Um, He designed the the dam that formed Diamond Valley Lake, which is the largest man-made reservoir in Southern California. And despite his exclusive use of Newtonian mechanics when designing the dam, I'm happy to report that it works quite well. Now, this is not to say that quantum mechanics is irrelevant to everyday life. Quite the contrary. In fact, I'm confident that just about everybody in this room relies on quantum mechanical engineering every day of their life, probably more often than that, every five minutes or however often you check your smartphone. The point here is uh, twofold. On the one hand, quantum mechanics has shown us that many of the premises and predictions of Newtonian mechanics are wrong. But on the other hand, while individual particles may behave in a way that defies the predictions of classical theory, it is also the case that when we aggregate those individual particles up to the level of our familiar environment here at this human scale, classical physics still gets the job done most of the time, but not all of the time. You don't need quantum theory to build a dam, but you do need some quantum mechanics in order to build a smartphone. 
And now the quantum principle. In our ordinary experience, we perceive things like time, space, and energy as flowing smoothly and continuously. Likewise, actions can be calibrated continuously, like moving a slider bar, rather than only discreetly, like selecting one of a finite number of radio buttons. We can always move a little bit faster, think a little bit harder. But at the subatomic scale, actions are discrete, not continuous. Time, space, and motion occur in indivisible chunks. Um, It's as if we moved like this, or like this. Whee! (laughs) Which would be pretty cool, I think, but but that's how things would look at the quantum scale if we we were able to perceive them that way. Uh, It's as if you could move not at all, or you could move this much, but not any amount in between. This is the quantum principle, the notion that certain physical phenomena occur only in discrete quantities, called quanta. That's where the term quantum mechanics comes from, in fact. All right, let's sum up, uh, before we turn our attention to something I I actually know something about, uh, like economics. Um, So quantum mechanics, it provides the foundations for physics at the nanoscale. The uncertainty principle states that measurement, the act of measurement, affects the system that you're observing. The act of measurement affects the observed particle's behavior. The correspondence principle suggests that while Newtonian mechanics is wrong, it's nonetheless a good approximation of activity at the scale of human society, at least most of the time. And most fundamentally, the quantum principle observes that Actions occur in discrete quantities. All right, so let's talk about economics. And I'll begin with neoclassical economics. The methodology of most of the work that's been done in law and economics over the last half century, and in particular, most of the law and economics that is associated with the University of Chicago, is sometimes called neoclassical economics. And I'll just highlight a few of its most salient features uh, here. Perhaps the most central characteristic, uh, certainly the most often criticized characteristic of the neoclassical approach, is the assumption that people behave rationally. In formal mathematical models of behavior, rationality often takes the form of the assumption that actors are able to calculate with infinitesimal precision at zero cost, the optimal course of action. This, obviously, is unrealistic. But it's important to understand that this strong version of rationality is employed merely for the convenience of mathematical modeling. It doesn't reflect any belief on the part of the economist that this is how people actually think. Rather, the concept of rationality that describes the neoclassical economist's understanding of, of, of human psychology is uh, something quite a bit weaker. It's basically that a rational actor is somebody who tends to behave in ways that uh, will tend to make them better off and tends to avoid doing things that would generally make them worse off. Nonetheless, there, there does remain a very real danger that the use of this stronger version of rationality, just to simplify the math, 
results in models that are worse at predicting actual real-life human behavior. One theoretical prediction that is safe from this criticism, however, is the law of demand. The law of demand states that people will consume more of something when its price is lower and will consume less of something when its price is higher. And importantly, price is not limited to the money cost of that thing, but it could be a cost in terms of time or effort or even reputation. This notion that human behavior responds to the incentives created by prices, broadly understood, allows economists to generate useful and consistent predictions about a wide array of human behavior, not just in the realm of markets, which has been the traditional scope of economic analysis, uh, but a wide range of social, legal, and political institutions. Let me turn now to behavioral economics. Let me begin with an example. Uh, Does anyone know why I have a picture of Gollum on this slide? Before he was Gollum, and before he had the One Ring, he was Smeagol. And if you showed him the One Ring and asked him how much he valued this item... Ah! He might say, well, it seems nice enough, it's probably worth something. Uh, If you gave it to me, I wouldn't throw it away. Uh, But then you give it to him, and it becomes his. And soon it's no longer just a ring. It is my precious. (laughs) Endow him with the ring, and he will pay everything in order to keep it. This is the endowment effect. Endow a person with something, and suddenly it becomes more valuable to him than when he did not possess it. It's the most famous behavioral bias that has been identified in the large literature in behavioral economics. What is behavioral economics? Well, again, I'll just highlight a few key features here. Behavioral economics, like neoclassical economics, studies human behavior, and in particular, the role of incentives in human action. But behavioral economics takes, as its starting point, a fundamentally empirical rather than theoretical approach. Drawing on the methodologies of psychology and other disciplines, behavioral economists have conducted a wide range of experimental studies. Laboratory experiments, generally, which involve uh, people, usually college students, as subjects. Now, another notable uh, difference is that while neoclassical economics generally... uh, attempts to identify equilibria in markets, firms, and other uh, social institutions. Most experimental work in behavioral economics focuses on the decision-making behavior of individuals. What this literature in behavioral economics has found is a large number of deviations from what one might expect a purely rational actor to do. I've already given the example of the endowment effect, and there are countless others. I'll describe uh, some of them some of them later. What we start to see as we recognize these deviations from what we might expect a rational actor to do is the sense in which behavioral economics really is quantum economics. Just as Newtonian mechanics breaks down when we look at the constituent pieces of our universe... 
neoclassical economics breaks down at the scale of the fundamental constituent pieces of our social universe, individual human beings. And just as quantum mechanics provides the nano foundation for all of physics, behavioral economics provides the nano foundations for all of economics. And in my view, that's not the end of the analogy. Some of the same principles that motivate and organize quantum mechanics can help us understand quantum economics as well. Take the uncertainty principle. Just as the act of measurement affects the observed particle's behavior, in economics, the act of measurement may affect the observed subject's behavior. After all, laboratory experiments, by their very design, create an artificial environment. This artificiality, to be clear, is desirable. It's the whole point. What you're doing is you're trying to focus your attention on one particular aspect or factor while holding everything else constant. But precisely because lab experiments examine human behavior in an artificial setting, we have to be alert to the possibility that the act of observing these subjects will change their behavior. Now, uh, you can imagine there are, there are many, many reasons for this. Some of them are, are, are more obvious and some of them are subtle. Uh, subjects may attempt to conform their behavior to what they expect the experimenter is looking for. They may simply feel self-conscious and behave differently than they would if they weren't being observed, and, and so on. There's also the question of stakes. One might be concerned that in the laboratory setting, the amount of money at stake in the experiment is too small to give the experimental subjects the kinds of costly trade-offs that they would face in a real-life situation. Uh, there's a recent working paper by Tess Wilkinson-Ryan uh, that looks at uh, experimental subjects' willingness to breach a contract when breaching the contract would allow them to increase their payoffs relative to honoring the contract. Now, as, as uh, you've probably already recognized from this description, what this experiment is doing is testing the neoclassical prediction of efficient breach where a party deliberately breaches a contract because it's more profitable to break the promise than to keep it. And this experiment entertains the competing hypothesis that moral considerations lead people to keep their promises, even when neoclassical theory might predict that it's inefficient to do so. In this experiment, most of the subjects, in fact, did not breach their promises even when it was in their financial self-interest to do so. But what was most interesting to me, what was most revealing about this study, was one of the reasons given by a subject for not breaching the contract. Uh, this is what they said, and I quote, Betrayal, for the most part, was not worth four to 15 extra dollars. And in fact, when the payoff from breaking one's promise reached the princely sum of $24, over 72% of subjects broke their promises. In other words, while it is surely true that moral considerations lead people to keep promises that they would otherwise profit from breaking, even here we see the operation of the law of demand. People respond in predictable ways 
to the incentives created by prices, even the price of a broken promise. The uncertainty principle for quantum economics, therefore, is a caveat about the external validity of behavioral experimental results. Now, I'll also briefly mention a second aspect of uncertainty that arises in the context of quantum law and economics. It's simply an uncertainty about what it is that behavioral economics predicts about uh, real-world situations involving law and policy. Without a unifying concept like rational behavior or the law of demand, behavioral law and economics today provides a wild array of heuristics and biases that have been identified in many laboratory experiments. And in fact, if you go to Wikipedia and look up the page called List of Cognitive Biases, this is what you get. 169 different biases, some of them cutting in different directions. So the, the point here is that great care is required before moving from the experimental setting to the setting of law and policy, because we're not quite sure what the prediction is in terms of which way behavior will be biased. There's also a correspondence principle for law and economics. In physics, it says that Newtonian mechanics is wrong, but it's a good approximation of the scale of human society, at least most of the time. For economics, we can say neoclassical economics is wrong, but it's a good approximation at the scale of human society, at least most of the time. This presents both Newtonian economics and quantum economics with a crucial question. What happens when you aggregate from the level of the individual up to the level of firms, markets, and other aggregate institutions? The biases that we observe at the individual level may manifest themselves at the aggregate level, or they may not. Consider the following. In a marketplace, businesses who behave rationally will do better than those who are led by irrational impulses, biases, or inaccurate heuristics. Does this mean that markets will eliminate all cognitive biases? Well, no. And helpful here is a study by John List, who's an economist here at the University of Chicago. He replicated one of the most famous experiments in the behavioral literature, which was the, the coffee mug study on the endowment effect. This is where you, you give uh, a bunch of college students uh, a coffee mugs after you ask them, hey, would you, would you buy this coffee mug for six bucks? And they're like, six bucks? That isn't worth six bucks. And then you give them the coffee mug and you say, hey, now that you have this coffee mug, can I buy it from you for six bucks? They say, no way, absolutely not. We're keeping this coffee mug. Um, so that's, that's what this, uh, these experiments find. Now, what List does, though, is he doesn't run them in the lab. He goes out into the field. And what he does is he, uh, he, he went to a collectibles convention where people were buying and selling baseball cards. So there's a market for baseball cards. And in this market, some people are sophisticated repeat players. They're baseball card dealers who, who uh, are constantly buying and, and selling uh, baseball cards. And other people are more casual collectors. They, they tend to hang on to their cards, but occasionally buy and sell. Here's what he found. The sophisticated repeat players in the market, the baseball card dealers, they didn't demonstrate any endowment effect. 
They didn't have an endowment effect with respect to baseball cards, which perhaps you might expect because they're constantly buying and selling them. They didn't even have an endowment effect with respect to coffee mugs. On the other hand, he ran the same experiments with the casual baseball card collectors, and he found something very different. With them, the laboratory result appeared in the field. With the casual collectors, both with respect to baseball cards and coffee mugs, there was an endowment effect in their behavior. And that is the rub. You don't need quantum mechanics to build a dam, but you do need quantum mechanics to build a smartphone. The challenge for law and economics is figuring out when it is we're dealing with a dam and when it is we're dealing with a smartphone. So let me describe now a couple of papers that represent some of the latest work that bears on exactly this issue. All right, the first paper is a paper on the endowment effect, and it's by uh, Jennifer Arlen and Stefan Tantrup. It's, it's in the uh, Journal of Legal Studies, which is published right here at the University of Chicago. It is a laboratory experiment, very much in the spirit of countless uh, laboratory experiments in behavioral economics. And it went something like this. So the subjects in this experiment were each given a lottery ticket. The lottery ticket had a 50% chance of winning, it, uh, a flip of a coin, literally a flip of a coin. Some of the lottery tickets would win if a coin flip yielded heads and lose if it yielded tails. Others would win with tails and lose with heads. A winning ticket would uh, pay off 8 euros. This was done in Europe. Uh, 8 euros worth about $11. And a losing ticket would pay nothing. Now, after each subject was given the ticket, after they were endowed with the ticket, they had a chance to trade their ticket for a ticket of the opposite type. So, in other words, if I was given a ticket that would win with heads, I was offered the opportunity to trade that ticket for a ticket that would win with tails. And if I made the trade, I would get paid a 25-cent bonus. doesn't matter what, whether I won or lost. I'd get paid either way. It's free money if you make the trade. And of course, because tails and heads have exactly the same probability of winning, one might think uh, a rational actor would, at least most of the time, be willing to make the trade. On the other hand, the behavioral prediction might be that most of, uh, of the subjects would not trade their tickets because of the endowment effect. So what Arlen and Tantrup found was a dramatic confirmation of the endowment effect. Over 70% of the subjects refused to trade their tickets. They said, oh, free money? No thanks, I'm happy with my ticket. Uh, now, but then they ran a second experiment, and they added a twist. The lottery tickets remained the same, the payoffs remained the same, the bonus for making a trade remained the same. But there was one important change, which was the subjects themselves didn't have the final say on whether or not their ticket was traded. Instead, they had an agent who would make that decision on their behalf. Now, the agent was just another student participating in the study. The agents received compensation as well, but this compensation wasn't sharing in the lottery ticket or the 25-cent bonus. They were paid separately. And whether or not they got paid was based on an incentive scheme that was chosen by the subject herself. The subject could choose 
whether the agent got paid if the agent traded the ticket or if the agent got paid only if the agent didn't trade the ticket. Now, given that we already know that over 70% of the subjects would not trade their tickets, how many do you think created an incentive for their agent to trade the ticket? Well, it turns out over 75% of them did. In other words, it's as if the mere act of shifting final responsibility for the decision changed the subject's behavior from what the endowment effect would predict to what a rational actor model might predict they would do. I think what's one of the things that makes this result intriguing is that the experiment is adding what might be seen as not only a little bit of complexity to the experiment, but a little bit of realism as well. After all, in real life, most of the major transactions in which we engage aren't done, we don't, we don't do them on our own. Rather, we have agents who help us either to uh, identify a possible transaction, negotiate that transaction, or to consummate and finalize the transaction. And we see here the fragility of this particular behavioral prediction when one adds a little bit of richness to the experimental setting. But behavioral effects don't always go away at the scale of real-life institutions. I want to take a look at a second paper. This is actually by a JSD student here at Chicago named Adi Leibovitch. Now, there's a particularly puzzling issue in uh, criminal sentencing, and one example of it I'll, I'll just give here, which is that in study after study, researchers have found that minors who are sentenced in the juvenile justice system rather than in the regular criminal courts receive longer sentences than those sentenced in the regular criminal courts for the same crime. It's, in other words, the juvenile justice system, an alternative uh, mechanism for sentencing of minors, is actually leading to harsher outcomes for those minors for the same crimes relative to the regular criminal justice system. Now, how can this seemingly bizarre effect arise? Well, the hypothesis is that behavioral economics can explain this. It's an example of the contrast effect. The idea here is that because judges in the juvenile justice system generally encounter a baseline set of cases that are relatively mild in severity, in contrast to what they usually see, those cases that are on the borderline between the juvenile justice system and the regular criminal system seem very severe and are treated accordingly. On the other hand, for judges who are in the regular criminal courts, the baseline set of cases that they encounter on a regular basis are relatively severe cases. And so when they encounter a case involving a juvenile, that's right on that line between going to juvenile court or going to the regular criminal courts, those cases seem relatively mild. Now, this is a clever hypothesis, but how do you test it? Now, this is a hard question to answer empirically. If you simply look at juvenile courts and regular criminal courts, there are all sorts of differences that might explain this difference in outcomes. 
For example, for all we know, it could just be that the kinds of people who want to become juvenile court judges are just really mean people, and that's what's driving this difference that we're finding. It could, could be all sorts of things. So what we would really like to see is something like an experimental setting where we can hold other things constant and just change one, one factor, one attribute, and see if that makes a difference. But because of the uncertainty principle, we worry about the external validity of simply running an experiment. We'd rather look at real-life data. What we would want to do, if only we could, would be to take two sets of judges who are the same types of judges. They work in the same courthouses. They see the same sets of defendants. They apply the same law. And they differ only in one key respect, which is their baseline exposure to cases of different severity. So what Leibovitch does is she takes judges from the Pennsylvania state courts. Now these judges are elected. And so she focuses on a set of judges who are all elected at the same time. And they serve in the same courthouses. And they apply, of course, the same law, all Pennsylvania law, in the same communities. Drawing defendants from the same uh, potential pool of defendants. But, and this is the key... During their first few weeks or months on the bench, just by random chance, some judges will happen to get a mix of cases that include more serious crimes. And again, just by random chance, some judges will get a mix of cases that happen to have less serious crimes. It's as if an experimenter were randomly assigning these judges to higher or lower baselines of criminal severity. Now, of course, over time, as the caseloads, uh, uh, as they see more and more cases, the caseloads of each judge will even out. So once the caseloads even out, you can ask the question, does this early exposure to either a high baseline or a low baseline change the sentencing behavior of the judges when two judges with different baselines have to sentence defendants for the exact same crime. Does having a different baseline affect your sentence for the exact same crime? Well, the answer is no. And it turns out in this data that a judge who's exposed to a higher baseline uh, of of, uh, case severity will give sentences that are 25% shorter than judges exposed to a lower baseline. So this is an example of the contrast effect in action. Not just in the laboratory, and not even with baseball cards or something like that. We're talking about the incarceration of our fellow citizens. These are just two papers, and there's a tremendous amount that is left to be done to understand the applicability and the limits of the correspondence principle in law and economics. But it should be clear from these studies that the stakes are high. The fact that much remains to be done, of course, only poses the question of how to do it. And to this end, I'll offer a hypothesis of my own that will make up the the third and final uh, parallel between the principles animating quantum mechanics and those animating quantum economics. What if we took the quantum analogy seriously? What if, just as in the physical world, actions occur in discrete quantities... In economics, 
cognition, effort, and attention occur in discrete quantities? What if people have only a finite set of packets of attention or cognitive energy that they can deploy? They cannot divide these packets among tasks as tasks multiply. So here's one of my favorite images uh, from the television show The Simpsons. It's Monstro Mart, where shopping is a baffling ordeal. (laughs) You know, I, I think this is funny because it taps into one of the strange ironies of modern life. How can having more choices seem oppressive? The quantum principle suggests that the notion of the tyranny of choice can be a very real thing. As options multiply, we cannot simply divide and further subdivide our attention and cognitive effort among an ever-growing list of priorities. There's a minimum, indivisible quantum of attention that we can employ. As a consequence, some tasks, some options, some choices, some threats, some risks receive our attention, maybe more than they deserve, while others are ignored. Even if, in a Newtonian world, we would more optimally divide our attention among all of these competing concerns. Now, one manifestation of this uh, quantum principle might be the certainty effect, which was identified long ago by behavioral pioneers uh, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. People would rather eliminate a small risk. Uh, So if you look at risk one in this illustration, you're taking that, that short bar and taking it all the way down to zero. You're eliminating a small risk. You'd rather do that then reduce but not eliminate a very large risk. So if you look at risk two, it's a larger risk. You're reducing it by much more, but you're not completely eliminating it. Now, given that our overall objective is to minimize the amount of danger that we're exposing ourselves to, this is a terrible preference. And when thinking about making choices for... uh, uh, regulatory policy or safety or safety uh, policy. This is a terrible, terrible policy preference. But you can kind of see the logic to it, can't you? After all, reducing the big risk, even if by a large amount, still leaves us with the same number of risks to worry about. Eliminating that small risk means there's now one less thing to worry about in the world life has become slightly less of a baffling ordeal. More generally, the idea here is that the cognitive load imposed by decision-making and multitasking may be deceptively high. It's a kind of internal transaction cost that introduces friction into human decision-making. All right, let me summarize Uh, briefly before I turn uh, to talk uh, just a little bit about relativity. So behavioral economics provides the foundations for economics at the nanoscale. The uncertainty principle for law and economics is that the act of measurement may affect the observed subject's behavior. It's a caveat about the external validity of experimental results. The correspondence principle for law and economics recognizes that neoclassical economics is wrong, but may be a good approximation at the scale of human activity most of the time, but not all of the time. Our challenge is identifying when to deploy quantum economics and when to deploy Newtonian economics. 
And the quantum principle, I suggest, may be that cognition, effort, and attention all occur, all exist in discrete quantities, and that this may help begin to rationalize or explain some of the biases that we've observed from behavioral experiments. Now, just as classical physics breaks down at the very smallest possible scales of matter and energy, it also breaks down at the very largest possible scales. Uh, Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to talk about just one concept from uh, general relativity. All right, this is Smiley. It's an image of a galaxy cluster taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, you can see these bright curves that seem to form the outline of the smiley face in the sky. Those are the distorted images of distant galaxies. They've been warped by a phenomenon known as gravitational lensing, which is a prediction of the theory of general relativity. Now, as you may know, general relativity holds that mass distorts space and time itself, such that gravity can bend even the path of light. So if you have a very distant, bright object, like a faraway galaxy, and you have a massive object, like a black hole, in front of it, relative to your view, the light from that distant galaxy is bent by the intervening black hole all around it, creating a warped image of the faraway faraway galaxy. So to give a more concrete illustration of lensing, here's an example of optical lensing. If you place the base of a wine glass in front of a candle, what you see is the single image of the candle becomes distorted, and ultimately you see uh, a ring of bright light surrounding a dark center, which is, of course, actually where the, the candle is. This is basically what gravitational lensing does. Now, I mentioned black holes. And as you may all already know, general relativity predicts the existence of black holes. Objects with gravity so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape. Now here's an artist's rendition of what a large black hole might look like if it blocked our view of more distant galaxies. Uh, Now, if you just kind of attend to the pattern here, there's kind of a dark blotch in the center, while there are bright areas above and below. Uh, Now, of course, this is merely a simulated image of a black hole. Of course, we might want to look for black holes uh, in the real world. And so we would search for images from satellites. Now, here's a satellite image, courtesy of NASA. Does anyone recognize this black hole? This is North Korea. Does everyone see that? That's South Korea. That's China. That's the ocean, and that thing that looks like the ocean in the middle, that's North Korea. Now, what does North Korea have to do with the theory of general relativity? Just as Newtonian mechanics does a good job of explaining how things work on Earth, but it doesn't do a good job of explaining why some stars give us Earth, while other stars collapse into black holes from which no light can escape. Newtonian law and economics does a pretty good job of explaining how markets work in well-functioning market economies. But frankly, it does a terrible job of explaining why some places turn into well-functioning market economies 
and other places collapse into black holes from which no light can escape. (laughs) And it's not just the striking visual analogy that makes Korea useful here. Just like the judges, how the judges in Pennsylvania provided a real-life setting in which researchers could look at the world as if it were a controlled experiment, Korea provides us with the best and perhaps only such experiment at the scale of entire economies. The great tragedy of the division of Korea into two countries after World War II has provided to social science perhaps the most valuable data point on the question of why nations succeed and why nations fail. To use the name of a book on exactly this subject by Darren Ashimoglu and James Robinson. So a little bit of history. Prior to 1948, Korea was a single country. It was composed of an almost perfectly homogeneous population in terms of language, ethnicity, history, and culture. But in 1948, after the end of World War II, Korea was chopped in half, arbitrarily, down the 38th parallel of latitude. The line was the product of a political compromise struck by the Soviet Union and the United States. But for the human beings actually affected by this, it might as well have been random chance, an experiment. People on one side of this line got one set of legal and economic institutions. People on the other side got a different set of legal and economic institutions. Neither set was chosen by the people themselves. Thus, if there's any difference between North and South Korea today, the difference is attributable to legal and economic institutions. And that difference can be seen, quite literally, from outer space. So if there's one thing we know, it is that institutions matter. Institutions matter to economic and social development. Institutions matter to global poverty and international human rights. But make no mistake, there is no theory of relativity for law and economics. There's no theory that tells us how we get to Earth and how we get black holes. We know that institutions matter. But which institutions? That's the hard question. And that is the search for the theory of relativity. Take a look at this map. Our own Adam Chilton and his co-author Mila Versteeg put together this map. And it shows the extent to which different countries' constitutions enumerate political rights, things like freedom of speech and so on. Darker blue means more political rights. Now, legal institutions may matter, and constitutional rights are one type of legal institution. But I think this map makes pretty clear that constitutional rights, standing alone, don't do much work. Venezuela's constitution offers more rights than the United States. Zimbabwe's constitution offers its citizens more rights than Australia's. And our old friend North Korea's constitution protects its citizens with more political rights than Norway. In short, while economists and lawyers are increasingly convinced that law and legal institutions matter, they matter to economic development, they matter to human rights, the search has only begun for answers 
to the question of law's role in development. All right, I'll just take a few minutes to reflect. important lesson from our examination of quantum and Newtonian economics is that all economics is behavioral economics. Indeed, behavioral economics brings economics back to its roots, all the way back to Adam Smith, who grounded his economic reasoning in thoughtful observation of the real world, not only of the rational, but also of the moral and emotional aspects of human action. This contribution of behavioral economics cannot be understated. In the latter half of the 20th century, some aspects of of, uh, neoclassical economics became so obsessed with sophisticated mathematical modeling that one would be forgiven for mistaking economics for a branch of applied mathematics. Of course, there were some neoclassical economists who never made this mistake. The University of Chicago's own Gary Becker one of the greatest economists of the last century or of any century, used neoclassical models. But he never forgot that the purpose of economic models was to understand real-life human behavior. In the view of Becker and his countless protégés, and I include myself among them, homo economicus is altruistic, yields to peer pressure, makes mistakes, feels loss aversion, and even succumbs to addiction. Indeed, Ronald Coase, the namesake for this lecture, would have been the first to say that the messy reality of transaction costs would lead real-world behavior to deviate from the predictions of simplistic mathematical models. And in fact, he was the first to say this. He said this in The Nature of the Firm and other work, and he won a Nobel Prize for it. Now, this fact is obscured by an out-of-context focus on the so-called Coase theorem, which is often stated along these lines. In a world of zero transaction costs, the initial allocation of legal entitlements does not matter from an efficiency perspective. Now, behavioral law and economic scholars, including those as eminent as our own uh, former uh, law professor, Cass Sunstein, uh, have claimed that Coase won a Nobel Prize for the Coase theorem, and that behavioral law and economics shows that the Coase theorem is often wrong. Now, this is unfortunate. It's unfair to Coase, as Coase won his Nobel Prize, as I said, for his work on property rights and theory of the firm. And in fact, Coase did not even come up with the Coase theorem. The author of the Coase theorem is George Stigler. Now, this is an example of Stephen Stigler's law, which is that no scientific discovery is named after its original discoverer. (laughs) And in case you're wondering, Stephen Stigler's law was discovered by Robert Merton. More importantly, though, this claim that behavioral economics refutes the Coase theorem misunderstands Coase's contribution. Coase had no interest in a world of zero transaction costs, any more than he had an interest in a world of unicorns and leprechauns. These worlds don't exist. Rather, the thrust of his insight was that we can understand deviations from efficient market structures and efficient private ordering if we understand transaction costs. And we can sometimes improve markets and improve social welfare by reducing transaction costs. 
But what are transaction costs? What are the costs that prevent the reallocation by contract of initial entitlements to their most valuable uses? Well, of course, there are some obvious ones that we've known about for a long time. It takes time and money to find a a contractual counterparty, to find a buyer or a seller. But that's not all. Other factors loom large, and this is where behavioral economics comes in. Cognitive phenomena, such as the endowment effect, can inhibit value-increasing exchanges. To this extent, therefore, behavioral economics is not a refutation of Coasian economics. It is Coasian economics. Now, consider the following. Sophisticated intermediaries play a crucial role in the proper functioning of robust markets, I assert. And this is so precisely because intermediaries attenuate behavioral biases. Now, think back to that study with the lottery tickets where you had the agent and you got the bonus if you traded the ticket. This study shows that even unsophisticated agents performing trivial tasks can have a dramatic effect on removing what would otherwise appear to be a behavioral bias. Now, of course, in real life, transactions are much more complex than in that experiment. But then again, in real life, agents are vastly more sophisticated than in that experiment. And who are these vastly more sophisticated agents? They're lawyers. Isn't that why we're here? Aren't we here because we believe that as lawyers, we can do something to improve the performance of our society, of our markets, of our government, of our economy. Let me say that our challenge as lawyers, and we are the lawyers who will make the future of law and economics, is to apply to the law the lessons from quantum economics and Newtonian economics with careful regard for the principles that explain their limits and their application, such as the uncertainty principle, the correspondence principle, and the quantum principle. And it also falls upon us to piece together a theory of relativity that can make sense of the role of law and lawyers, not just for our society, but for the future of this world. Now, I hope this last hour has not been a baffling ordeal. Thank you very much. So we have about 30 minutes or so for questions, and uh, William, I'll let you take your own questions. Thank you. Please. So it seems like you're saying efficient markets eliminate all this behavioral stuff, all this quantum stuff. And like the strongest principle, like an asset pricing, is no arbitrage. So if you have an efficient market, that'll eliminate arbitrage opportunities. You have some guy with biases mispricing some asset, the more efficient guy, the smarter person, will cut them down, and you'll have more efficiency, and all the behavioral stuff will go out the window, or, or not. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that's, I mean, there's a vigorous debate going on, I think, right now uh, about understanding financial markets in exactly this context, which is you have a set of 
of fairly crisp predictions from what I'm calling the, the Newtonian or the neoclassical model, which is if uh, uh, the transactions cost, the traditional transaction cost, the, the cost of transmitting information, the cost of looking up prices and so on, if those things are very low, you might expect the market to um, approximate very closely uh, the prediction of perfect efficiency and for things like uh, irrational biases and so forth to be ironed out very quickly uh, by rational players who are able to uh, take advantage of such uh, irrational behavior, and that people who are trading in an irrational way will, cons- will consequently lose money, and they'll be, they'll be crowded out of the market by people who can make money by behaving uh, more rationally. Having said that, ultimately, you know, it, it is an empirical question, the extent to which behavioral biases affect the operation of financial markets. And I think it's for exactly the reason that um, I, I tried to highlight at the end of my talk, which is even if the traditional transaction costs, as we think about them, are exceedingly low in many financial markets, we have to think about transaction costs perhaps uh, more broadly. And to the extent that we see uh, 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 attempts to reduce uh, the computational or cognitive cost of making decisions in these contexts uh, through reliance on signals from other market participants, uh, one of the things that you tend to see is herding behavior, for example, uh, in, in, in some markets. And that can lead to, at least in the short run, I don't, I don't think this is necessarily as big a, a problem in the long run, but at least in the short run, fluctuations that might be greater than one would otherwise expect. But, um, but I think that that's, you know, it's exactly that kind of, um, of question that I, I can't hope to answer, um, but that many people are working on it right now, not just looking at the effect of uh, whether the market is efficient in terms of having low money transaction costs, but the extent to which um, the, the computational or cognitive costs of transactions are actually affecting the efficiency uh, of these markets, especially in, in, in short time frames. Yes? So I, I like that analogy quite a bit, going from mm-hmm. small scale to large scale, from uh, a quantum to Newtonian, from behavioral to, to uh, neoclassical. But I wonder if, if there's another transition that occurs. So when I, when I looked at the, the more career picture that you put up, I thought, yeah, it's true that at a macro scale, we have a lot of trouble in neoclassical economics explaining what's going on, because we can't predict which institution show up where. It's random. Uh, so it's just the United States. But I bet you if I were to be able to run it, walk around North Korea, I would see markets everywhere. Uh, and neoclassical economics would tell me a lot about what's going on. And so I think what, what we might, might, might be a more accurate description, and maybe it's also true about physics too, because uh, the way things work at a cosmic scale, a little bit different than they work at a human society scale, is that neoclassical economics is really good for that mid-level, where you're just talking about hundreds of people, thousands of people, maybe even a few million people. But when you're talking about very small, small number of people where there's lots of frictions, behavioral is good, and in a macro scale, we need something else entirely, some theory of institutions or international relations. Yeah. And that might be true. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's exactly where I feel like we we have to head uh, as, uh, as an academic community, as a legal community. When you're dealing with very small numbers of people or individual decision makers or with people who are behaving in an atomistic way, uh, where they're not being, uh, they're not participating in, in in a market, even if many people are doing the same thing simultaneously, uh, you really worry about uh, this quantum type behavior. You want to think in terms of quantum law and economics. When you're dealing with 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 uh, with markets or, or communities, you you want to think in terms of Newtonian uh, law and economics. And yes, within North Korea, you can use Newtonian economics just fine to understand 
the, the kinds of, of, uh, of behaviors that you observe. Just like within South Korea, you can use Newtonian uh, economics to, uh, to study uh, markets and market-like behavior, the role of prices, the law of demand, and so forth, just fine. And the analogy there, I think, uh, to, to relativity theory is within a frame of reference, so you talk about different frames moving relative to each other in, in, uh, in the theory of relativity, within a frame... You can use Newtonian physics to explain motion very well. The, the, where relativity really comes uh, into play is when you're talking about uh, Newtonian frames moving relative to each other. So a spaceship moving at the speed of light versus uh, somebody remaining on Earth, for example. Within the spaceship, Newtonian physics works just fine. On Earth, Newtonian physics works just fine. But of course, what happens is when the people on Earth look at the spaceship, uh, things seem to behave very strangely, okay? And so the, uh, the idea, the, the analogy that would apply here is exactly the same one. You can use uh, uh, neoclassical economics to explore the way in which markets arise even in um, uh, a totalitarian state like North Korea. But in terms of explaining how do we get countries that are currently not as prosperous as, as we are, from there to here, uh, you know, that's a question that neoclassical economics really has struggled with. And, and I think there's, that's an area where there's a lot of work to be done and new methods may be, may be required. All right, here's somebody who probably knows a lot more about physics than I do, so I'm worried. Okay, yeah. The question whether the analogy can be pushed too far. Well, I like right. the analogy, but there's two, two worries about it. One is that quantum mechanics actually has a theory. And as your slide of 149 behavioral bias, but it's not really a theory uh, in, in behavioral economics. Just, as you said, it's, not, it's really empirical, not theoretical. And so that, the analogy kind of breaks down there. And the other place where you might say, you push too far, is Newtonian economics does purport to have a theory of individual behavior, namely game theory and design. And so it is attempting to explain that, you know, that individual interactions through that mechanism is not behavioral. And maybe it fails, but sometimes it works. And, and so it's not the case that it's truly Newtonian. It is atomistic as well. Oh, great. No, thank you. You know, one of the things I didn't address in this talk certainly is, is game theory, which, as you're right, does, uh, does model individual interactions in a way um, that relies on the, what I've called the, the, the Newtonian or the neoclassical assumption of rational behavior, um, but looks at, at it at a very individualized scale rather than at the scale of entire markets. Um, uh, I guess what I'll say about, about your first point is I think that's kind of where I, I was starting to go. I didn't want to spend a, a too much time on it because I already had a, had a very long talk. But I think that's exactly what, what, what the future of uh, behavioral economics needs to include, which is the development of, of, a, of a theory in the same way that quantum mechanics has a theory. It's not just a bunch of, wow, look at these crazy, wacky things that happen. It, it's, it's actually, look, here's a model that makes uh, predictions about what happens at the quantum scale. And in fact, this model is so good that if you, if you, and this is the correspondence principle, if you apply the model to the macro scale, it generates the right predictions as well. And, you know, we're not, we're, we're not there yet in, in terms of, of behavioral economics, but my suggestion with the, you know, my hypothesis, it's nothing more than that, of the quantum principle is an attempt to say, are there certain assumptions that we can make about human behavior that allow us to generate a consistent set of predictions that incorporate a large number of individual empirical findings into a coherent framework 
so that we can actually generate out-of-sample predictions. In other words, predictions that go beyond, well, we know for sure that if you do this with this group of students, with this many coffee mugs, you'll get this result, and can say, no, no, this is actually how we should, how we should run things. Uh, and that requires both very rigorous empirical testing, which has been the, uh, traditionally the strength of, um, of, uh, of behavioral economics in the laboratory setting, but also a theory that allows us, that gives us a, a framework for how we extrapolate from individual findings to, uh, to predictions about, about policy and so forth. So I think um, in order to, to complete the analogy, I think we need to demand that there be, uh, that there be more theory on the behavioral side. And, uh, and I think in some sense that's, uh, and I think in some sense the future is going to have to be bringing together some of the tools from neoclassical economics with some of the results that have been found in the, in the behavioral area. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Professor Hubbard, for this short report. I think it was probably the most educational hour I spent at this law school, and there was a lot of competition. So um, you qualified the sort of simplistic, perhaps, opposition of neoclassical and behavioral economics. And I was wondering if you could um, elaborate on your points at the end of the talk about some of the policy implications. I mean, um, is the sort of Sunstein era in which we live in terms of regulatory policy broadly correct based on what you're seeing? I mean, are we kind of supporting both the cell phones and not bursting any dams with kind of nudging architecture of choice type approach? Or maybe we need some more you know, re-emphasis on command and control regulation in some cases, or perhaps, uh, you know, if you said that this intermediation might be going too far, and so this is what are some of your preliminary thoughts on that? I, wow, I mean, that's... Uh that's a whole uh, uh, that's a whole another con- conversation. Uh, obviously, a, a very important set of questions that all of us need to spend a lot of time uh, thinking about. You know, I, I certainly can't uh, offer any any specifics, but I guess what what I will say is that I, I, there's kind of two um, in terms of just the broadest strokes. I think that there are kind of two uh, competing considerations that that cut against each other in terms of thinking about uh, the role of regulation given the findings of, of behavioral economics. On the one hand, I think there's this very important uh, insight, which is uh, reflected in, in uh, Nudge, you mentioned, and, and in other work, that choice architecture is, is very important. That, that, and this, I think, goes to the quantum principle and, and the certainty effect and so on. At, the, the number of choices and the order of the choices, the structure of the choices that you present to people will affect the decisions they make. The default rules that you choose will often determine behavior. If you change the default rule, you'll change the behavior. And as a consequence, it's unavoidable that, that uh, uh, people in uh, positions of power will have to act as choice architects and will have to take into consideration uh, uh, these behavioral economic uh, insights. And, uh, you know, and, and I think you know, most people often perceive the, the insights of behavioral economics as nudging us, uh, no pun intended, in the direction of, of greater uh, paternalism or, or regulation. But I think there's... Another insight from behavioral economics that actually pushes us a little bit in the other direction, and I think that's uh, typified by the example I gave of the Leibovitch paper here, which is, isn't it interesting that the example that I use of when the behavioral effects appear on the macro scale, the actors were government agents. And the concern that we might have is that in the context of government action, unlike the context of market action, 
There aren't, there isn't competition for more rational actors that can crowd out the irrational or biased individuals. By definition, government only works if it has a monopoly. And if there's no one disciplining you against the use of irrational behavior, and that's kind of what we worry about in the, in the judges' paper, right? The judges are doing their level best. But, you know, this is a, it's just a cognitive bias, right? And so this bias is manifesting itself um, because there's no forces that are disciplining um, this exercise of this bias. So on the one hand, there's a greater need in some sense for paternalism. But on the other hand, we have to be very cautious because the government, it's people too, right? The government are people too. And we have to keep that in mind as we think about the role of, of, of government and regulation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also thought your uh, uh, analogy was uh, quite stimulating, but I, I just want to point out that at least in, in, in financial economics, there's, uh, there's a, like a Heisenberg uncertainty equivalent in Goodhart's law, which says that any financial measure that is also a target loses its uh, usefulness as a measure, uh, loses its informativeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that uh, is explicable, I think, by rational... Uh, behavior by uh, regulatory arbitrage mm-hmm. uh, and not by uh, behavioral economics. So just wanted to throw that out as a possible complication here. Sure, and I guess I should add there are plenty of um, behavioral biases that um, you might say to yourself, look, yeah, this seems like a real bias, but as you aggregate behavior up to the level of, uh, of, of you know, markets, um, you might say, well, you know, for an individual it's a bias, but the bias is kind of white noise you know, when we move up to the level of markets. And it turns out the neoclassical uh, models do, do very well at explaining what would otherwise seem to be uh, something mysterious. Uh, so I, I certainly don't. Uh, I certainly uh, 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 don't dispute that, and, and I think, uh, and I thank you for the suggestion. I'll have to look up that. Um, I'll have to look up that that particular example. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, Richard. Yeah, um, I'm curious as to why you choose quantum mechanics instead of Darwinian biology, and the explanation would be as follows: uh, the biological theory says that self-interest is not an accurate model. Uh, there is the literature on inclusive fitness about how genes and people interact. Uh, these things systematically explain deviations from individual rational economics at the uh, family and small level, but as you get larger and larger, the effects get smaller and smaller. So that when you're dealing with strangers, uh, it's an ordinary bargain, and then you distribute the wealth within the family in accordance with other principles, and that seems to have a translation that you could actually organize Whereas the Heisenberg stuff, you know, you're going from 10 to the minus 34th, which is Planck's constant, up to God knows the 60s. So you got 100 orders of magnitude in there on the difference. And it would seem to me that you'd probably do better off in trying to figure out whether or not biological tendencies of one kind or another survive or don't survive in organized markets. And I think it would actually conform pretty well to what estate planners think on doing this stuff, the way in which marriage markets start to work. Kinship relationships and so forth and so. I'm curious if you ever came back for a reprise whether that would be that title. Of the movie. Darwinian econo- law and economics and creationism law and economics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, no, um, 
Yeah, no. Uh, you know, uh, it, so I'll, I'll just say this. You know, in fact, many economists, both behavioralists and neoclassical economists, actually have, have thought about the role that that evolutionary forces might have, both in the development of human cognition and as an analogy to economic forces. So I think that's that's something that, that people are uh, thinking about, and I think it may be it may be a rich a rich field. I'll also say uh, something else, which I, again I didn't include in the lecture for time, but um, there are beyond behavioral economics uh, and neoclassical economics, there are um, other emerging methodologies in, in economics that may or may not be promising, but they're certainly quite interesting. And, uh, and one of them uh, is might be called complexity economics or something like that, where it looks at uh, basically um, myopic interacting agents uh, whose interactions lead to emergent behavior that's much more complex than the individual agent's individual behavior. And, and that draws very self-consciously from this analogy to natural selection. And uh, one of the uh, reasons why this area of research might be particularly uh, relevant uh, to, to the material today is this theory of relativity concept. How do we how do we get where we get when the time scales are extremely large and the, and the communities of individuals are extremely large? There, it may be that, that models uh, that, uh, that rely on uh, simplistic, myopic behavior but large-scale interactions that lead to uh, complex patterns may be or may not be. I mean, this is, this is the question. It, it's, it's all very new, uh, a potentially uh, a fruitful, fruitful area. Uh, now we go back to David's question about the unified theory of underlying behavioral psychology. I guess it's well, I think, to beware lest one accept prematurely a simplifying theory. We know what happens in the heyday of behaviorism. Everyone thought, yay, we've got the theory of human behavior. And it was comforting because it seemed like we, we, we didn't really have much choice and we know how things worked and so on. And so I think it was comforting both because it was simplifying and because it meant that human beings really don't don't have much choice. And, uh, and so, of course, a lot of people in the law went through that whole sale. And today, uh, of course, evolutionary tendencies are taking the place of that. But the, I would say, having read quite a lot of the, the psychology of human ethics, that the state of the art really is that there's very little that evolution gives us. It gives us tendencies, but that those are interacting with culture very early age, the more we know about the perceptual capacities of human infants, the more we know how early culture impinges. So the number of uh, experimental results that are robustly cross-cultural is fairly small. And what someone like Paul Bloom at Yale, for example, would say is, well, you know, we can tell you about tendencies, but pretty much everything interesting is culture and what we choose. So, so I guess I think there's need for, for caution lest one even assume prematurely that there would be such a unifying theory. This is like the world of this. It's true. There, there may be no unifying theory, or it may just be that the, the unifying theory is extraordinarily com complex. I, I tried to look up uh, the very basic outline of the, of the standard model in, in, in quantum physics, and there, there's nothing simple about it. Uh, and, and it may just be that quantum law and economics, there's nothing simple about it either. Um, I will say that you know an important distinction 
that kind of draws the line between uh, behavioral psychology and behavioral economics, in my view, is that uh, part of what psychology offers that e- e- economics doesn't offer, or at least shouldn't pretend to offer, is the ability to explain what really makes individuals tick. Because so much goes into what makes individuals tick that um, it, it, it would simply be a farce to, to uh, be, be too reductionist about it. On the other hand, even if all you're able to do is extract tendencies, when you're talking about the patterns of behavior across large numbers of people, even a tendency can have a very big effect on what the aggregate outcome looks like. And so I think economists relative to psychologists are on their surest footing when they're talking about, exactly as you say, tendencies across large groups of people rather than trying to explain anything at a highly granular level. I think in general, um, uh, economics is consistent consistently done, done poorly in, in that respect. Um, and, and I think that, in some sense, is simply beyond the realm of what <coughs> economics can, can attempt to capture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I enjoyed the talk. Thank you. Um, um, physics talk actually has a very long history in economics. Sometimes it's referred to as physics theory. Um, one theory is that it speaks to the anxiety that economists have about the theories not being able to do the job That's a very interesting uh, set of observations, and I I guess my response is is kind of yes and no. And I'll say this, which is, I think in some sense, you know, this is this is an area in which I think both neoclassical and behavioral economics has has been relatively weak. Uh, You know, uh, many people criticize neoclassical theoretical approaches uh, for being uh, unrealistic, and yet, if one turns to behavioral laboratory experiments, well, laboratory experiments by their very design, are unrealistic. And so the question becomes, how do we incorporate things like the effect of social norms or, or, uh, or, or peer pressure or culture? And uh, the interesting thing here, I think, is it's worth noting that there are both behavioral and neoclassical economists who are working on trying to provide exactly that richer picture of human interaction that's not purely uh, atomistic or based on a representative agent uh, uh, behaving in, in, in a way that uh, uh, purports to um, uh, uh, represent a larger group of people. You know, in fact, some of, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, some of Gary Becker's uh, uh, more fun work uh, uh, is, is about exactly this. His methodology is neoclassical, but the questions that he asked were, well, how might things like 
social pressure affect the way that people behave? Uh, he, had, he had this uh, this kind of fun paper that was inspired by him uh, going to uh, a restaurant. He went out to, to go to uh, eat at a restaurant, and he saw this long line out the door of this of this very trendy restaurant. And of course, being the good neoclassical economist, he said to himself, "Well, that's." That's irrational. Uh, this restaurant should just raise its prices and not have a line out the door. It could increase its profits, um, and the market would still clear. Um, so then he thought to himself, now, well, wait a minute. Uh, they probably know more about running a restaurant than I do, uh, which is, you know, I think the kind of humility that's appropriate for an economist. And so he, 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 he took it upon himself to ask, can I explain this as potentially rational. How could it be that a restaurant would intentionally create a line out the door rather than simply raise prices and, 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 uh, and get a smaller crowd? And the explanation he came up with was actually social, social effects, peer effects, which is that you know, you, your demand for a restaurant depends on other people's demand for the restaurant. And there's this reinforcing effect of seeing what other people do and then them, and then, then, and then them seeing what you do. And with a low enough price, if there's enough demand, the fact that other people are demanding it increases your demand for it. And that's why there's a line out the door. But if you raise the price, demand starts to go down. That's the law of demand. But of course, because demand is going down, you don't like the restaurant quite as much because it's not quite as popular as it was before. And we see kind of a death spiral for the restaurant at that point. And so, you know, the, the details of the theory uh, aren't important, but I think the, the spirit of that model is very important because it's saying we want to take seriously the, 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 the social, the intuitive, the social, the visceral aspect of human behavior that's affected by culture and community and not just uh, the dollars and cents, which is often how neoclassical models are, are perceived. Yeah. So that... That observation leads me to wonder a little about um, if you're writing the first story before about lawyers. So um, let's suppose you're right, and I think you are, that lawyers push people toward being rash, rational actors. Is that necessarily something that we ought to uh, unreservedly celebrate? Um, so to, to take another an example you didn't use, but a famous result for behavioral economics. If you look at the way people actually behave in uh, ultimatum game situations, uh, they don't behave as rational actors. And my own view is um, it's really a terrific thing that they don't. Um, uh, and if lawyers are pushing people toward behaving as rational actors in situations like ultimatum games, isn't that a problem with lawyers? Yeah, okay, great question. So let me begin by saying if you actually look at ultimatum games in the field uh, rather than in the lab, uh, neoclass economics is a pretty, pretty darn good job, actually. That's a shame. Uh, no, it is a shame. I agree. I mean, I think that's a, very important, that's a very important distinction to make is, you know, just because people do act a certain way doesn't mean they should. And to the extent that we as lawyers are in a position to influence norms, and if norms actually affect behavior in the long run, we should... We should care about the should, not just the is, right? And, uh, you know, I, I think ultimatum games and dictator games are, are a great example. You know, in the lab, you give a person a dollar and you say, look, you can divide this dollar between you and your partner any way you like. And guess what? Your partner can't do anything about it. This is the simpler version. This is the dictator game. Your partner can't do anything about it. You just decide that's the end of the game. 
period, full stop. And what you see is people giving, you know, 25 or 40 cents to the other person out of every dollar. And the result is, hey, look, people are altruistic. People aren't these selfish automatons like neoclassical models predict. But my question is this. In the real world, whenever any one of you gets a dollar, how much of it do you give to a stranger, the next person you see on the street? I don't think you give 25 cents or 40 cents. And I think that's an example of the uncertainty principle, the, the observer effect in, in action. So, but boy, wouldn't it be great if these results from the lab actually showed up in real life a little bit more? Um, and I think that that is an important, that that normative aspect is an important question. Now, with respect to the kind of work that lawyers do on a more everyday basis, you know, consummating contracts and that sort of thing, I think the, the Arlen and Tantrup experiment is actually helpful in that respect, which is the subjects themselves got to choose what the incentives of the agent were. And it's almost as if the mere act of giving final responsibility to someone else made them think about their own situation a little bit differently. And they said, yes, I want you the agent to do the the uh, to make the trade, and so it wasn't necessarily that the agents were you know overriding um, the the subject's belief. Quite the contrary, the agents were in some sense consummating some preference that the subject herself, um, in some sense, had, and uh, and the fact that you have this agent allows you to overcome the bias. Uh, having said that, nonetheless, it is true that, you know, in some respects, I do wish in real life I acted more like uh, the behavioral lab experiments uh, predict than, than neoclassical models. Um, and I think that's, you know, those normative questions don't go away regardless of what, um, of what theoretical uh, system you use to describe, to describe reality. Decades ago, so I may not remember it. I mean, Coase's whole point is that 
you know, he's attaching pigou, and he, uh, because he ignores uh, bargaining. And in all of the sort of Kosian examples, and a few, uh, some of this kind of qualitative empirical work, it's bargaining that leads to the efficient outcome, right? He, he doesn't worry about uh, behavioral biases or anything like that interfering with uh, uh, bargaining uh, leading to the, to the efficient outcome. So, so you know, well, it's, it's a little unclear now whether you think Kose is, you know, whatever, quantum or Newtonian or both, or spec or both, or uh, how, how should we think about these guys? Well, uh, my, my goal here isn't to, to classify. I mean, I think ultimately physics is just physics, right? It's just that we find certain tools more valuable, more useful in certain contexts than others. And our use of these tools should be guided by, uh, uh, by, by principles that allow us to um, deploy the tools in ways that are more effective rather than, uh, rather than less effective. And really, that's my view about behavioral economics and neoclassical economics as well. It's not really about choosing sides. And one of the motivations for this lecture, frankly, is you know, I, I talk to a lot of students who are very interested in economics, and they say, well, I'm interested in behavioral economics. And I think the idea is, look, here's this... You know, you know, here's Goliath. It's neoclassical economics. And here comes David to take down Goliath. It's behavioral economics. We're going to show that, that, that it, you know, the bad guy is wrong. And I, I, I don't have that view. It's just, it's all, ultimately, it's all just economics. And it's all behavioral economics because economics is about behavior. And to the extent that behavioral economics tells us things that are true, actually true about human behavior, then neoclassical economics has to account for that. And to the extent that neoclassical economics offers methodologies that allow us to make better out-of-sample predictions, uh, then I think behavioral economics should incorporate, uh, should incorporate those elements um, as well. Uh, so I think you know, what we see, uh, my view is this analogy is useful for thinking about the differences between these, these and the features of these uh, approaches to economics. But ultimately, just as is the case with physics, it's all just physics. You know, the world works as the world works, and we should use the best tools we can to describe the world. I, I would say the same thing about the economy. We should use the best tools that we have to understand economic life. And, and sometimes, uh, very often, those are the tools of behavioral economics. And other times, very often, those are the tools of, of neoclassical economics. And I think we have to be sensitive to the limitations of each of those approaches. And I, I talk about those a little bit, um, uh, a little bit here. Um, but that's, but that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate uh, goal, uh, the way that I see it. tradition of the Coast Lecture to uh, introduce the ideas of law and economics to the first-year students, uh, among other things, and I think Professor Albert has given the first years much fruit through food for thought, given all of us food for thought. Uh, it is now your task, first-year law students, to go out and discover the theory of relativity and name it after <laughs> Professor Hubbard. <laughs> uh, but before you go do that, join us in a reception outside. Thanks, and This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.